Hi, and welcome to episode 45 of the Making Margin podcast. My name is Nick Foy. I'm the founder of Greenway Wealth Advisors. We are a financial planning investment management firm based in Charlotte's South End. We're all here today. Every member of our team is included in the recording. It's exciting. Some people are using uh, mute excessively. This people, especially with preschoolers who have brought home little viruses to them, wishing you well. But we still want to hear from you. Everybody asked, am I on this today? I said, if you have a voice, I would love for you to be on it. A literal voice. Um, So here we are. Today, we're looking into the future. Do you remember uh, Conan O'Brien used to do this thing in the year 2000? In the year 2000. You remember that, Jeff? Yeah. It was classic. It was classic. And they predict things that would happen in the future in the year 2000, like it was way off. And then even after the year 2000, they kept doing in the year 2000, <laughs> like they did it in 2002. Allie, how old were you in the year 2008? Nine. Well, eight for half of it, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're looking into the future. What's in store for 2023 and beyond? And uh, from sort of two different perspectives, that of the optimist, that of the pessimist. I don't know if we're going to present those our uh, participants today are going to present those perspectives, but that's sort of the angle that we're coming from with me. Let's see, let's do uh, geographically distance wise farthest away from our South end Charlotte headquarters from her home near Nashville, Tennessee, Allie Crouch. Hello, Allie. Hello. She's our director of client experience from his home in Huntersville, North Carolina, Jeff Eminger. Hello, Jeff. Hey, happy to be here. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Jeff's our director of financial planning. At his desk here at our South End Charlotte headquarters, Drew Harris. Hello, Drew, senior advisor. Hello. Hello. And at her desk, our CFO and a senior advisor of our firm, Natalie Foy. Hello, Natalie. Hello. It's a party with all of us here. It's a party. Um, All right. So forecast time, every new year presents an opportunity for financial pundits to make pointless forecasts that are almost assuredly going to be wrong. I've noticed very rarely do people actually go back and check them on this. So you can make whatever forecasts you want. They're doing it in the football game. They do it at the football games too. Everyone like very is very confident about their predictions for the NFC championship games and I'm sure coming up for the Super Bowl. And no one ever goes back and says, wow, you're really wrong on that. Um happens because we love predictions. We love pretending to know what's going to happen in the future. And then when it doesn't happen, we justify why in our minds, don't we? We're like, ah, well, that didn't happen, but here's why. Of course, that was that should have been obvious. That's so well, obvious. in the post game, it's how obvious it is that the outcome was what it was. Yeah, how obvious. And they don't ever check back. But you said this very confidently initially. But we're not going to just talk about 2023. We're going to talk about the long term. And we're going to talk about it from the perspective of optimism versus pessimism. There are a lot of negative headlines, sort of drives our news cycle. So is there reason to be optimistic about markets and life in general this year? And what about in future years? What inspired this conversation was a uh, early January post by Morgan Housel, who's one of my favorite authors. Uh, it was, uh, the title was Justifying Optimism. And uh, we'll talk through that a little bit. Okay, questions. Very specific here. Market prediction questions for everybody, even you, Allie. The Dow is currently right around 34,000. Let me see where it is right this very second, actually. 
33,919. It's down about a half percent today. The Dow is a terrible barometer of the market, but it's the one that lots of people use. So we're going to go with that. The Dow is currently 33,919. We'll call it 34,000. Will the Dow end the year higher or lower than 34,000? And if you have a specific number, you get bonus points. Drew, we're going to start with you. I have no specific number, but I'm going to take higher, Bob. Drew says higher. All right, I'm going to note that. And then in December, we're going to come back. In January next year, we'll come back if I remember to. And we're going to rate your prediction. Natalie Foy, higher or lower? I don't know, but I'm going to go with higher. And the reason is, in a one-year period, historically speaking, the market has about a 75% chance of going up. Or in 75% of years, the market has ended higher. Drew, you're pointing at something. Do you have that written down as well? I think he's going to say, yeah. go ahead and say what mm-hmm. you're going to say. No, that was it. That was exactly, that was my um, evidential reason for mine higher. I agree with Natalie. But in Great any minds. singular instance, that doesn't necessarily mean much. No. Right? Probability is, as, as Drew and I were discussing the other day, probability doesn't mean a whole lot when you're talking about something that's going to happen to you because whatever happens to you happens to you 100%. Wow. Yeah, I feel like a doctor once told you that. Yep, that's very true. I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but I appreciate it more now. All right, so very quotable. Too, too higher. Jeff? I'm also going to say that I have no clue, but my guess would be higher uh, for the same reasons. You know, Natalie pointed out that 75% number. So it's not exactly a coin flip, right? Um, so if I was a betting man, that's what I would bet my money on. You're not a betting man? Not really. I bet I get you betting by the end of the day. I'll give you two to one odds. <laughs> All right, Allie. Um, I guess since they said 75%, I'm going to take the 25% and be the one-fourth. Mm. So I'll say lower. I like it. I like it. Lower than 34,000. Okay. I don't know what 34,000 means, just so we're clear. So I take offense to your saying <laughs> even, Allie, but I actually have no idea what that means. So. No, don't uh, don't be offended. It's be it's. I, I think the role that you play in here is as the intelligent person mm-hmm. who just doesn't care about the markets. Yeah, I literally no clue what the thirty four thousand means. So nobody knows what it means. But I'm that's going the, lower. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Um, uh, I'm I'm saying it's going to be thirty four thousand exactly. <laughs> so that's when technically up then, right? Well, it's from yeah, it's up from thirty yeah. three thousand nine nineteen. But I'm going to go ahead and say Nick has a like zero percent chance of being right. <laughs> I think it's at least a little higher than zero, right? There's got to be a chance of that being the case. Mm. We'll um, say there is a yeah. I mean, there are years where the market's flat, but it won't be exactly thirty four thousand. What about um, the dividends and that return? Oh, yeah, are we grossing those? Oh, That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um. Don't make any investment decisions based on our conversation here today, by the way. <laughs> it's so dumb. Uh, but it's good to sort of make light of this because nobody has any idea. But if you say, I really, I think based on, and you list three reasons, what your like three reasons are, like based on the pressure, inflationary pressure and, and uh, Chinese manufacturing slowdown, you know, you can make it sound very serious and like, you know what you're talking about. Um, Natalie's not in your head. She was an analyst once. <laughs> I okay. think that our Conan preface probably gave enough of that. I'd like you that you didn't need to, you know, take our prediction. I think that was the, you know, the new disclaimer. 
you got to go back and watch these. They turn the lights out and they take little flashlights and face Andy Richter would be sitting there with a flashlight and they'd say, and, the, and it would be a, uh, what was the orchestra? What was their band called? Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember. I'll think about it. Okay. Michael Burry. Who knows who Michael Burry is? Michael Burry uh, is famous for having been written about in a book called The Big Short, uh, a Michael Lewis book, which I'm excited for the next Michael Lewis book. I don't know if it's actually going to be the next one, but we talked about cryptocurrency recently. I'm excited for the next Michael, Michael Lewis book. Michael Burry was written about in The Big Short, which became a blockbuster movie. I'm going to be one of those people because I read the book. The book was better. Okay, <laughs> I don't say that, but when people do, I get it. It's always I'm better. It's, it's always better. So the book was better. So if, uh, anyway, Michael Burry, uh, January 31st of this year, right before the Fed was about to meet and decide on interest rates, tweeted out a single word tweet that got millions of views, retweets, likes, responses, all sorts of things. It went viral. It went viral all over the place. Michael Burry is famous for one time having correctly predicted that the housing market was going to crash. Okay. Once you get something like that right, you are the rightest guy forever, even if you're wrong in all future instances. Everyone will go back and always believe that you're right. Michael Burry's prediction, or what he said in his tweet, single word, sell. That's all it said. It said sell. He's sort of an eternal pessimist. right? Like He's always predicting that the world, doom and gloom, that the world's going to end. On the flip side of that, is this Morgan Housel, who Morgan Housel sold a lot of books now, and he's pretty well known in, within financial circles. He wrote this book called, or he wrote this piece called Justifying Optimism. And in it, he talks through sort of long-term optimistic viewpoint um, that things get better over time, that bad things that happen actually lead to better things because we react to those appropriately. He talks about, you know, when there's a, a plane crash, there is a follow-up to that and a lot of investigation as to why it happened. It has made air travel much safer through the years. So these tragedies happen, but then they lead to better things. His blog post is not going to be as popular as Michael Burry's one-word tweet that said sell. Why will Michael Burry's tweet go viral and Morgan Housel's blog post will be seen by very few eyes, relatively speaking? Why is pessimism so popular? Someone explain this to me because I don't get it. I will take a stab at it and I don't really get it either, but I think, well, if you were to back up and you just picture yourself with a group of friends, well, particularly women, let's say a group of girls and you all get together, you were not going to mostly hear people say, Oh, my husband has been so awesome for these reasons. Instead you will hear. Wait a minute. Hold up. Your, your friends hear that from you. Don't they? No, 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 no. Oh. Not at all. Um, but there's just this natural bias to complain. And I don't I don't know why. Um, but I think it is reality, even when you don't think about it from a financial standpoint of, you know, people are just drawn to probably complain and look for the bad in certain situations. Um, and then I think another reason that that pessimism is popular is because, or especially when it comes to things like Michael Burry's tweet of sell, it suggests that he knows more than you do. And he's looked deeper uh, past the, or into the data and has this 
this strong view. And if you sell, it's you're doing something. And there's this bias for action. Um, whereas if you were to say, oh, yeah, there's going to be ups and downs in the market, but just stay the course. Like there's no action. I mean, I guess the lack of action is an action. But um, generally speaking, we like to feel like we're doing whatever we can to lead to the best possible outcome. And doing means in this case, you know, selling. I think that's really well stated. I agree. Drew? Um, I have three ideas. Uh, first of all, kind of like the whole idea with news, like if it bleeds, it leads. Um, you know, we do gravitate, as Lord Nally's point, to uh, kind of negative news. Um, and then another is that I think that a lot of, you know, perma bearers, it, they sound smart. Um, and this kind of maybe goes back to what you were saying, Nick, of, you know, giving the reasons um, and that there is this compelling case. Um, and third, uh, that, you know, when you're doing this, especially in the markets, um, you've got the phrase of like catching a falling knife uh, comes to mind is that, you know, the market grinds up slowly. Um, but then when it drops, it drops fast. And so that you have, if you get it right, um, then, you know, there's this kind of prescient, you know, kind of image that you've got. Is that the right word? Um, you know, being able to kind of forecast, you know, kind of what happens. And man, that's, that would be gratifying if you actually do, you know, grab the the knife by the handle. Then you're a genius forever like Michael Burry. Everybody's like, oh, you were the guy and now you're famous in a Michael Lewis book. I don't know. I would I would just throw out there Meredith Whitney, who's the first to call that wasn't it City was going to cut their dividend um, back in 2008. She was seen as prescient and um, ended up going out on her own. Well, that didn't work out very well. So not everyone is seen forever as being a genius. Is that just sexism, though, because she's a woman and Michael no. Berry will forever be seen as a genius? Uh, well, actually, I was going to say, what about Kathy Woods with... <laughs> Maybe, maybe it is sexist. That's, that's her story's turned around a little bit. I remember the first that's time true. I was did I talk about the Kathy Woods story when on this podcast? I feel like it might have. So she know. manages uh, she manages a technology well, it's mostly a technology fund. What's it called? The Innovator Fund or something? Um, and Ark Invest as she runs. It's called Ark Invest, and uh, um, I had never heard of her because I don't pay attention to like these like market you know gurus that are like oh I've, I run an ETF that's going to change the world and everything else. Um, and she had this really great run up with the ARC innovation ETF, uh, and probably the peak was about exactly when I heard of her. I wish I remember who told me about her because I go back and say, that didn't, hasn't worked out so well. It like down like 90% last year and it's recovered a little bit this year, but anyway, uh, it's been a rough go and money has been flooding it, flooding out of the doors. All right, Jeff, back to the question at hand. I feel like you were going to say something regarding this. Why does, why is Michael Burry and his type? become so much more famous than a Morgan Housel and his type. Yeah. Um, well, first, one of my favorite little attention-grabbing clickbait things is the guy who called the whatever crash saying this about indicators now, you know? Um, That's exactly think, it, yeah. I think part of this is rooted in kind of our biology of just um, our survival mechanism. We are wired to look out for danger. Um, to survive. And I think that's a lot of it. Um, so pessimism gets our attention in a way that optimism doesn't. And optimism, you can be seen as, but people are just skeptical of optimism. 
it seems like you're unaware of uh, what's happening in the world. Um, and I think that makes, you know, the Morgan Housels of the world writing about optimism, it quiets their voice in relation. Um, he, he has another piece that's kind of interesting on this topic called The Seduction of Pessimism, which is another great read on the topic. One of the points that he brings in there is, and I'll just read it here, despite an awareness of how powerfully powerfully we've changed in the past, it's too easy to underestimate our ability to change in the future. Psychologists call this the end of history illusion. So it, pessimism is really like a confirmation bias of that that says the time that we're living in is the most important time in the the history of the world. And, you know, you get all these like doomsday you know, there's shows on TV about prepping for the doomsday because we, we think that we're so important that it's going to happen in our generation or whatever. So I think that that's probably my viewpoint on it from a... I like that. Um, I'm going to say something else, but first I want to hear from Allie. Um, I agree with all of that. I was just going to say that the same thing that fear sells. I mean, it's always what the media is. It's constantly fear-driven news because that's what people tune into and that's what they watch and that's what they repeat. And like Natalie said, people like to complain and there's not a whole lot to talk about if you're like, I think the market's going to turn out just okay. But there's a lot to talk about if you think <laughs> it's going to crash or, you know, so I agree with all of that. Um, does anyone here watch the news on a regular basis? Uh, everybody's shaking their head now. <laughs> no. Do you have we, any experience with people on. in your life that do? Yeah, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say I had it on with our 11 year old son the other night he really wanted to watch it. and it was just like murder story after murder story and i was yeah. like the local, was the local news no local oh really but local, local news i feel bad. like is the worst <laughs> i mean we just had like the idaho murders and then you know a bunch of things i was like we need to he's gonna think this is all there is so we need to turn this off mm. so we turn turn to the weather channel <laughs> <laughs> drew what were you gonna say I don't watch it very much, but I mean, I have, you know, a similar story of like seeing, going with a family member and they had a certain bombastic uh, news station on. And I mean, it was just panic. Um, and then, but I remember uh, being a kid and watching the Houston news with my grandparents and being just terrified. Um, and, you know, now it's the, but this is the world. I mean, this is it of just kind of, you know, murder and, um, you know, robbery and stuff. And it was just scary. I took my mom to the dentist yesterday because that's what good sons do. And afterwards well I picked her up a sandwich from, yes, thank you from the Laurel market. Delicious. I got a curry chicken salad also, but she, uh, we're driving in the car and blah, blah, blah. And she's talking about current events when she's like, isn't the world crazy right now? She's like, have you seen what's going on in the news? And like, I kind of know because I've got my news feed on my phone and, uh, you know, I look at the, wall street journal i look at the new york times and i get a lot of like that sort of thing but like if you just sat there and watched tv and just had the news on all day and that was your only perspective you would be losing your mind generally speaking because there's no other way like oh my gosh the world has gone to hell and if people feed on it and you can keep eyes glued to the screen because of that even though there's this like whole reality out there that yeah there's some really horrible things that go on in the world but there's a lot more that goes on too and you just don't get that perspective um, in this justifying optimism piece, Morgan talks about William Bernstein, who's one of my favorite financial authors. And he wrote a book uh, 10, 15 years ago, maybe called The Birth of Plenty. And it's about uh, 
like global trade and uh, the birth of our modern economic system. Um, it's a long, detailed book. Uh, but anyway, four things he says that are necessary for long-term economic growth, secure property rights, a scientific view of the world, widely available and open sources of funding, and rapid communication and cheap transport of goods. And we saw this last year on the fourth one, rapid communication and cheap transport of goods. When there was the big backup at the different uh, ports, the port of Long Beach, which is the, mo- the busiest port in the world, I think, um, stuff comes over from China on ships that gets dropped off at the port of Long Beach, gets put on trucks and trains and tr- shipped out everywhere. That's amazing that that happens. But there were giant backups, these ships just sitting out there um, and the cost and the timing and everything else of the transport of goods went, went uh, the timing it took was taking a lot longer for things to get transported. The cost was going way up. There are all these bottlenecks and everything else. I think that's done now. Like that's not an issue anymore. And we basically smoothed it all out because that's kind of what markets have a tendency to be able to do over time. It's like, just figure it out. Um, so, but that was an example of when one of those things was missing, suddenly there was, um, economic growth stalled, right? Where, oh no, this isn't good because you didn't have a cheap transport, cheap and rapid transport of goods like we necessarily expected. So those are the four things if you're thinking about it. Um, So even if, if you're an investor and you guys talk with people who are, we talk with clients who are concerned, although we don't get that much of it really. Um, But it's understandably concerned because they're watching the news too. Um, you talk with clients who are concerned. What is the message for somebody who's either starting investing or has been investing for a long time, has built up a nest egg, they've worked really hard for it, and they want to make sure that it doesn't go to zero. They want to make sure that they've protected themselves. What is the message for somebody who says, I can't take this anymore? Or somebody who says, this fear of the future is leading me to not want to actually invest any money. What do you say something like that? Silence. We don't say anything. That's so assuring. Well, I think it's two different messages for someone who's, you know, early on in the saving uh, mode and someone who is closer to retirement and, you know, needing the money that they have and not having the ability to continue saving. Um, In the earlier scenario, um, you know, the person who's accumulating has the ability to save. The message is, you know, over the long term, we expect that the economy is going to continue to expand. And why is that? It's because of what Jeff mentioned, where, you know, if something goes, and maybe Nikki mentioned it as well, with the flight crashes, the air, airplane crashes, there are all these tests that are run to fix the problem. Anytime there is a problem, it's an opportunity for um, improvement, for growth. And I think we really do underestimate the ability for people and markets to adapt. Um, so I think that is certainly, I don't wouldn't say it like that necessarily, but like over the long term, we expect the market to grow. Um, so your ability to save now, who cares what's going to happen tomorrow? Who cares if there's a recession? There are going to be recessions. There are going to be times when the market contracts, but we're talking about your ability to grow this investment portfolio for decades. Um, so the more consistently you can save and the earlier you can save, you take advantage of compound growth. Um, maybe I'll pass it off to somebody else for adding to that or changing that or talking about the is, other is, piece. Isn't that a self-serving message though, coming from somebody who gets paid to invest other people's money? 
Uh, well, I, I guess you could say yes. Um, if it's false, if, right? Say if I it's mean, false. yeah. I think the flip side of that is um, if you don't invest, if you just keep your cash in cash, then your purchasing power is going to decline over time as inflation increases. And so I think, well, of course, we want people to continue to invest and grow their portfolio because we're helping them manage that. But I really look at it as that's in their best interest. And also, that's what we do. We're fiduciary advisors. So that's we're looking out for people's best interests. That's good. I think that um, looking towards history can give us a lot of information. And um, it, in Morgan Housel's piece on pessimism, he says... Every market crash in the past looks like an opportunity and every market crash in the future looks like a risk. Um, but if we can talk through the reason that markets have, um, why they go up more than they go down is that we have a very long history of change and of adapting to circumstances. Um, so, you know, you could take like, if a person you know, say you had that couple and uh, a young couple, one person lost their job. They're not just going to say, oh, well, I guess that's it. We're, we're just, we're going to be broke now in five years, right? They're going to go look for a job. They're going to interview or they're going to change career paths or they're going to reduce their expenses to give them longer runway. If you do that as a person, don't you assume that other people in the world do the same thing and businesses are doing the same thing? You know, businesses, investing markets, they are pushed to their limits. We kind of live on the brink of unsustainable. And um, it's in breaking through those things. And sometimes um, frequently bad things have to happen first to get to a breakthrough. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing it tells me that we won't be able to continue to change and adapt in the future. And that's ultimately why the long-term view of markets will grow over the long term is because there's nothing else that tells me otherwise. Um, nothing that says that, you know, now we can't change and adapt. We're just stuck where we are. I just don't believe that. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And the way I sort of think about it, you know, is that Michael Burry might be right, um, and a pessimist could be correct about a prediction that the world's going to end, but it's still a really bad bet, right? Like it, because that just hasn't been the story of history, hasn't been the arc of history. Drew, you're going to say something? I think it's a really good response. Um, I, you know, to your question about the person who comes in and, you know, uh, I guess that you know fear or concern is kind of dominating. Um, I think that also just kind of asking questions of, you know, trying to identify kind of what is it, you know, what, what really is the concern? What's the worst thing that can happen? Essentially, if you can put, um, you know, a face on the boogeyman, it, it may not be as, you know, scary. And then, you know, being able to share kind of those, uh, the historical um, reasons for the optimism. Um, but, you know, first kind of really trying to pull out, like, why am I afraid and what's behind it? And, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? And answering those questions could help defang it. That's good. Allie? Allie, you don't say, only say bad things about Alex, right? I never say any bad things about my husband. Because <laughs> <laughs> why would you? Yeah. Thoughts? I think that um, perspective is key in most situations. And I think that um, 
that a lot of, like Jeff said, a lot of people think that this is the like worst time to live or it's the worst, like the world is awful and horrible and all these things. And I think that if you zoom out and think about different historical times, like Nero or Hitler or whatever, you're like, oh, you know, it's actually not that bad. Um, and things tend to over time get better. Like we're in a whole lot better place than we were in the 1300s. Like, so I think that Jeff was right in that, that like, you know, we are built to adapt and change and grow and get better. And that has continued throughout all of history. So you can probably I, bet that's going to continue to happen. I, th- I think that's really well said. I, uh, I like to, I've told you guys before, blueberries at the grocery store are like my year round blueberries at the grocery store are, are like my, uh, my sort of go-to to be like, wow, that is pretty cool that somebody's growing blueberries that end up on a ship. I guess that's how they get here from South America, which a ship is like public transit for your goods. Like everything goes on there and then bring it up here and they end up at the grocery. And I go to the grocery store year round now and get a blueberry. Although Nellie has been complaining about the ones from our Walmart delivery lately. They've been kind of soft and not great. I think if I were buying them at Publix directly, they'd probably be a little better. But the idea is... But well, you is, have your groceries delivered. I mean, that's also a pretty major upgrade. That's a, that's a major upgrade. You didn't yeah. have to work in the field to, you know, just <laughs> subsist on what you can grow in your backyard. And if your blueberries are bad, it's one button on the app to say, please refund me. These are terrible. That's right. I, uh, uh, you know, we have the Nest uh, thermostat here at the office, which, Allie, by the way, we keep a lot warmer now than we used to. I'm really sorry about that. Is that because but, Natalie's there? No, it's because our system, they installed it wrong when they first did it. And so we mm. weren't getting any heat and it kept breaking down. And now it works. It works great. It's, I'm very comfortable right now. You never believe uh, me. And it's 41 degrees and raining outside. But my, my, the Nest service, I can tell whether or not to turn on based on where I am. It'll turn off when I leave and it'll turn on when I get here. That's amazing. You walk in front of thing, it turns on. And the rest of the time, it turns off. Can you believe that that's a thing that we've figured out? Anyway, if you're not excited about those things, come talk to me. I have many things on my list that I'm excited about that nobody else. Everyone's like, yeah, duh. <laughs> All right, that's my story. Um, thank you for this conversation. Anything else to say about Michael Burry? I guess the only thing I would say is I, I like the word optimism, but I also think having um, a perspective that is optimistic, but also realistic. Like some people think optimism is is salesy. Blind, and yeah. Yeah, and blind. And I think, um, at least as I think about what we talk about with our clients at Greenway, we're not saying, oh, yeah, the future is rosy. We're saying there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And the opportunity for those ups comes at the cost of the downs. And um, and like I think being, um, uh, being aware of history and being um, able to speak to that is really important. And so the optimism that we have for long-term prospects is, is not, it's not blind. It's, um, it's, it's really being very mindful that it's going to be ups and downs and zigs and zags. And, and that's, that's all part of the plan. I think that's really well said because yeah, it doesn't mean that things are constantly rosy, uh, but it doesn't mean over long-term um, we tend to get better at doing things. All right. When we started our call, it was about 10.15. The Dow, what did I say it was? 33,800. Oh, it went down 33,000. It was nine something. Now, so I was right. 34th. <laughs> I didn't say end of the end of the call. 34,065 now. It's up over 34,000 uh, 34, again. But it's pretty flat. 
I was right. <laughs> mm, technically, it's, um, it's up. Technically, it's up, but yeah. You said exactly I'd 3,400. Say, I'd say flat. It's flat to up, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Grateful for your time. Thanks for spending it with us. We'll be back. Thank you.